a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study today. This is the sixth, and at least for now, the final study in a series of studies we've been doing in Romans chapter 1, the last half of the chapter, verses 16 through 32. And we've worked our way down to verse 28. Verse 28 says, Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, God is driving home some truth here that he's already made clear earlier in this passage. But notice here, he did not say since they were unable to perceive that God was real. He said, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Why did he say it that way? Well, because back in verse 18, he's already told us that because of their ungodliness and unrighteousness, men chose to do what? Do you remember? They chose to suppress the truth, to suppress the truth, to push it down, to cover it up. And back in verses 19 and 20, he's already told us, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, he concludes, they're without excuse. And back in verse 21, he's already told us that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile and their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And back in verse 23, he told us they chose to exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And in verse 25, he said, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. So here he says, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. They chose to ignore God. They didn't want him to be their God. They didn't want to submit to him. You see it? God's provided all kinds of evidence. His existence and his nature are clear for anybody that wants to see it. We've already talked about this in earlier studies of this passage. Go back and watch it again if you need to. But if you ever run into anyone who says, you know what? I would really like to believe in God like you do, but I just can't believe it. Some people talk like that. You ever heard anybody talk like that? It's not too unusual. But a good question to very graciously, patiently, kindly, lovingly ask, are you serious about that? Would you really like to believe in him? Or is it possible you're just saying that because it seems like the right thing to say? 
And if he or she says, oh, oh, no, no, I'm very serious. I really would like to know. Then you could say, well, if you're serious, it turns out God's given us lots of evidence for you to consider. <laughs> I mean, if they're willing to look at the evidence, you can send them to a, a link to the Veritas 2020 playlist. It's out there. You, know, you can watch it. Lots of evidence there. But unfortunately, of course, a large number of people who might claim that they would believe in God if they just had enough evidence, <laughs> they don't really want to see that evidence. And if they do happen to run into some of that evidence, you know what they do? They feel compelled to try to come up with a, some kind of alternative explanation for it. They don't want God messing with their lives. <laughs> so as Paul wrote right here, they just don't see fit to acknowledge God. And so for the third time, Paul writes these ominous words, God gave them up. Back in verse 24, he wrote that since in spite of the clear evidence that points men to God, they chose to refuse to honor him as God or give him thanks because they claimed to be wise. They were actually fools. God gave them up, he said, in the lust of their hearts to impurity. They enjoyed their sexual sins. So God gave them up to it. God said, have at it. But I promise you, you won't like the consequences. <laughs> In verse 26, he wrote that because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, he gave them up. There it is again. He gave them up to dishonorable passions. They chose shameful, disgraceful lusts over God. So God essentially said, okay, I'm giving you up to those dishonorable passions that you've chosen. We've talked about all that. And the previous two studies. Here, God tells us they didn't see fit to acknowledge him in spite of all the evidence that points us to him. So he gave them up to what? To a debased mind, a debased mind. The word that the ESV translates debased is a very interesting word. The New American Standard, by the way, translates it depraved, which would work just fine. You know how in English we sometimes use the letter A to negate a word? You know what I mean? If you add the letter A at the beginning of some words, it creates a word that means the opposite of that word. You familiar with that? I'm sure you are. For example, someone who's a theist, a theist, T-H-E-I-S-T, -E that's someone who believes in God. If you add an A before the word, you have the word atheist now. And of course, that's the opposite, someone who does not believe in God. Another example is the word symmetrical. Symmetrical means balanced, right? Asymmetrical means unbalanced. You put an A in front of it and it means the opposite. Symptomatic means you have the symptoms of a particular illness or disease. Asymptomatic means you don't have any of the symptoms. Been hearing those words a lot in COVID-19 days, haven't we? Typical means normal, usual. Atypical means not normal, unusual. Now, the English language gets that little feature from the Greek language. The Greek language does exactly the same thing. It does it a lot. It adds the first Greek letter in the Greek alphabet, alpha, which corresponds to our English letter A, and that negates the word. And that's what's going on here with this word, debased. The word translated debased starts with an alpha, a dokimos. A docimos. And it means not docimos. Whatever docimos means, this is the opposite. 
Well, dokimos was a word that was used to refer to money in that day that was approved money. It was genuine. It was real. You could count on it. In that day, money was in the form of coins, precious metals. And sometimes unethical money changers would take those coins and try to unobtrusively shave off little bits of the coins to cheat people. But men of integrity would make sure people knew that they were getting the full coin. These men were said to be dokimos. They were approved. They exchanged the real thing. They were honest. They were ethical. They were honorable, tested, esteemed. So the idea behind this word dokimos came to mean it tested and found to be genuine. And when they put the alpha in front of it, adokimos, which is the word Paul uses here, it meant unapproved, tested and found wanting, not really honest, not really true, not dependable. These men have chosen to reject God's truth. They've chosen to deceive themselves about God himself. Their minds are not given to accepting the truth. So God says, okay, you really want a mind like that? You've got it. He gave them up to it. Where does it lead? Well, it not only leads to judgment, it leads to insanity. It leads to self-deception. It leads people to convince themselves that there's nothing wrong when something is very obviously very wrong. And they begin to call evil good. And they begin to call good evil. God already told us through the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Paul, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's the kind of people talk, Paul's talking about here. So here in verse 28, God's extending the truth that he mentioned in verse 21 and 22. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. God's given them up to depraved, debased, unapproved, dishonest, unaccepted minds. And it leads, he says here, to doing things that ought not to be done. Here verse 28 leads to excusing sin. It leads to doing things that God calls sin and calling those things good and acceptable and normal. Jesus told us people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Remember that in John chapter 3? And then he added these words to that. He said, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. They don't want the truth. They don't want to hear the truth. Peter said something similar to this near the end of his life. He said, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, doing what? Following their own sinful desires. Their desires are leading them. Their lusts, their passions. In the Old Testament, God again used Isaiah to warn people about this same problem, the problem of rebellious men who reject God's truth. Look at something else that Isaiah wrote. This is in chapter 30 of Isaiah. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, talking about prophets here, do not see 
And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what's right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let's hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach and a high wall bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. Isaiah wrote this. And he wrote it over 700 years before Paul wrote this letter to the Romans. Rebellious men were still the same in Paul's day as they were in Isaiah's day. And of course, they're the same in our day today. Nearly 2,000 years after Paul wrote these words in Romans chapter 1. Well, in verses 29 through 31, he describes the kinds of behavior that rejection of God leads to. It's not just sexual sin. It's not just lesbianism. It's not just homosexuality. Look at this list. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil. Another word for that would be wickedness, covetousness, greed, malice. This is a desire to hurt other people. They're full of envy, murder, strife. They love to fight. They love to argue. Deceit, maliciousness, their gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent. That word jumps out at me. I've had so many of these kinds of kids through my years of high school teaching. These are the kids that if you have to correct them, they roll their eyes at authority, you know. People who think they're smarter than everyone else. These are people who think everybody is beneath them. Haughty. Boastful. Inventors of evil. These are people who come up with creative new ways of sinning, of doing wrong, of rebelling against God. Disobedient to parents. Of course, Kids don't have to be taught how to be rebellious against their parents. We're all born with that selfish, rebellious sin nature. You know it. By the time a kid's two years old, you can see it. But today, kids are encouraged by some authorities to just bypass their parents, especially if their parents are Christian, if they believe the Bible. You just need to bypass those folks. Go to agents of the state, secular experts, so-called experts. Sometimes these people are employees of public schools. You know, if you if a child and a kid needs an abortion, your parents don't have to know about it. Disobedient to parents. Foolish. Faithless, which means not trustworthy. Heartless, which means cruel. Ruthless, which means merciless. The point of these verses is that when men reject God, when they choose not to acknowledge God, and remember, many times this begins in many people's lives when they're young and their passions begin to rise within them, the hormones begin to flow, and they don't like what God says in His Word about sex. They have lusts, they have cravings, 
They have desires and they don't want to hear what God says. So God says, if you don't want to listen, I'm giving you up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And that leads to sin increasing and multiplying into every imaginable kind of evil and wickedness like these things he's listed here in verses 29 through 31. And when a large portion of a people group rejects God, as is happening now in America, the land begins to become polluted and it overflows with sin and unrighteousness. And of course, eventually, all of this has to bring the consequences of sin, the consequential wrath of God is piling up and we're reaping what we've sown right now in America. And it's just beginning, guys. Brace yourselves. And look at verse 32. Paul won't let them get by with feigning ignorance. He won't let them pretend that they just didn't know the truth. Verse 32. Though they know, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, wait a minute, Paul. Are you saying that people who reject God and embrace various kinds of sins already know that they're guilty and deserve to die? <laughs> Paul, if I tell them that, they're just going to laugh in my face. They claim they don't even believe God exists. They say they're not the least bit worried about the outcome of their sin. But Paul is saying somewhere deep down in their hearts, people really do know better. Just as he's already made it clear that people have this deep awareness that God really does exist. Maybe they try to cover it up. Maybe it's hidden. Remember, they suppress the truth. And in the same way, they realize down deep, God is very serious about sin. Somewhere deep down, they know they are rebelling against the infinite, holy God. They know they deserve death destruction. But they make themselves into fools. They try to pretend it's no big deal. They try to make themselves believe there are no consequences. So they just keep on doing what their sinful nature urges them to do. They just keep right on sinning. No repentance at all. So Paul adds, not only do they do them, they approve of others who practice them. Misery loves company, doesn't it? People who practice evil love to encourage other people in the same evil. You've seen that over and over. It happens with kids all the time. They want to hear others approving their behavior and engaging in the same behavior. So they reciprocate and they tell others, hey, what you're doing is just fine. It's normal. This is good. And they approve of each other's sin and they encourage each other's sin. They may think thoughts something like this. So what if those Christians try to tell me that God says, for example, that homosexual behavior is sin and leads to bad outcomes? I've got people all around me who give me their approval. They assure me that it's fine and good and normal. It's just who I am. In fact, almost everybody I know approves of this. There's no way I should deny myself of what I want. And those few maddeningly irritating, bigoted, Bible-believing Christians out there who try to tell me about behavior sinful, well, they're just hateful, mean-spirited homophobes. They need to shut up. And if they won't shut up voluntarily, then somebody needs to shut them up. Maybe the government needs to shut them up. This is where we are today 
in America. Now, we've come to the end of Romans chapter 1. But listen, guys. It's just the beginning of some of the most profound teaching, some of the deepest theology in the entire Bible. Paul doesn't stop here. <laughs> Romans doesn't end with chapter 1. <laughs> in fact, for self-righteous people who might be reading this section of Scripture, this, this section of Scripture is almost a trap for self-righteous people because it's really easy for us to say, you tell them, Paul. You tell those awful sinners what their real situation is. Put them in their place, Paul. <laughs> but Paul's not done. And when he gets to chapter 2, there's a powerful warning to any of us, any of us, who might tend to fall into this trap of self-righteousness. It's real easy to fall into that. You know, Jesus himself warned us about this problem in his Sermon on the Mount. Remember? Jesus said this, Why do you see that speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Let me take that speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? He said, You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And you got some sin of your own to deal with. <laughs> so I want us to take just a minute before we quit today to look briefly at what Paul writes next in chapter 2 before we stop. Remember, there were no chapter and verse divisions in the original manuscript. So when he's writing chapter 1, he doesn't end there. He, he just goes right on to chapter 2. <laughs> and here's what he says. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because... You, the judge, practice the very same things. So he's saying, before you let yourself fall into the trap of self-righteousness, you need to take some time to look at the sin in your own heart and in your own life to do some self-examination here. Verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, the things he's been talking about in chapter 1. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself? that you will escape the judgment of God? <laughs> or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So Paul's warning his readers that, hey, we all need to examine our own hearts. We're all in the same boat. We're all guilty. We all deserve God's righteous judgment and wrath. Listen to what Paul says just a little bit further on down in chapter 3. This is verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, A-L-L, all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. He wants to drive that point home very clearly. We all need to do some self-examination. Verse 20, he says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, oh, wonderful turn here, look at this. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, 
the righteousness of God through, look at this, faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, wow. We're all guilty and we can be cleansed by the blood of Jesus, all of us. So, no, Paul is by no means done. <laughs> and then when he gets to chapter six, almost weep thinking about these chapters. And then to chapter eight, the spirit uses Paul to write some of the most magnificent truth that God's ever revealed to men. Awesome passages, guys. If you've not lived in these passages, <laughs> might be time to think about that. Maybe we can look at some of those awesome passages together later. But for now, as difficult as it is, we've got to stop here. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for showing us the truth about ourselves, about our nation, about sin. Thank you, Lord, for this powerful passage of Scripture that many of us would like to ignore in our day because many don't like it. But thank you for putting it in your word. Thank you for causing Paul to write it down. Thank you for reminding us that, yes, there is horrific sin in our land because it's been so common for men to reject you. They don't want to see you. They don't want to hear you. They don't want to think about their sin. They want to deny it. They want to approve of each other's sin. They want to encourage each other in sin. And Lord, we're living there right now. And Father, thank you for reminding us, as Paul went on in chapter 2, that we're all guilty. We must avoid the tendency to be self-righteous when we look at sin that we're not guilty of because we're all guilty of sin. We're all guilty of different kinds of unrighteousness, and it's all horrific in your sight. It's all disgusting. It all leads to just death and destruction. So thank you for reminding us of this, and thank you for reminding us that that's why Jesus came to forgive not just the homosexual, not just those who've gone into sexual sin, but Lord, to forgive all of us of all of our sin if we will just repent. So Lord, if some of us are going around with logs in our eyes that we haven't confessed to you yet, if some of us are living in a self-righteous kind of way, pointing our finger at others instead of looking at ourselves, forgive us. Help us to be honest before you. Help us to let you examine us and show us the sin that we need to repent of, all of us. Because, Lord, we thank you so much that in Jesus we can be forgiven and cleansed and washed and given the gift of your righteousness and your salvation. And all the glory goes to you, Lord. So, Lord, help us to have a gentle, compassionate, loving heart as we talk to people about these things. And help us to keep our focus on you and on your truth. And, Lord, help us not to get unbalanced, not to be so gentle that we refuse to tell people the truth about sin. And Lord, help us. To, there's so much confusion, Father, in our midst. Help us to speak to that confusion clearly, effectively, solidly, to stand firm, to speak clearly and loudly your truth, but to always do it with great compassion, the love of Jesus. 
So thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you're teaching us. Thank you for what you've taught us in this awesome passage of Scripture. Thank you for this incredible letter that Paul wrote to the Romans. Thank you for using it to teach us, to make us more like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.